Hello and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. And this episode, we try once again to watch an, an American werewolf in London. Was Were we successful this time? With great success this time. Thanks yes. to Paul Murray. Yes, Paul Murray was so kind, a uh, friend of the show, Paul Murray, was so kind as to donate a brand spanking new shrink-wrapped copy. Well, not brand new. It was from 1996. But this copy of An American Werewolf in London had been laying dormant in its shrink wrap for the last 20 years, just waiting to be watched by us. And it looks like we just missed the expiration date on the mail-in rebate offer. Yes, I'm reading now from the official mail-in rebate coupon that came in our copy. Excuse me, the Super 7 rebate offer. Where if you buy any of the three following tapes, you get a $5 rebate. Those tapes are Hoosiers, An American Werewolf in London, Weekend at Bernie's, The Doors, Kickboxer 4, Deception, and eyes of an angel. Unfortunately, this this offer was good through June 30th, 1997. So we missed out on this sweet deal. It's a complicated deal though. They really make you jump through a lot of hoops to get this. Cause I thought you just send in the proof of purchase that you pop off the tape box. They asked for the original sales receipt for each video, which this is for three different videos. I usually throw away my sales receipts and they want the proof of purchase. And this is all to get just $5 off. I bet you nobody like did $60. this. $60. Yeah, these tapes were probably retailing for about $20 a pop. To get a $5 rebate, I don't know. It seems excessive. And, I don't know, looking at these movies, maybe I'd want to own a copy of Weekend at Bernie's on VHS tape. I don't really know if any of these movies are really... I've never seen Kickboxer 4 or any of the Kickboxer movies, really. I can't even see the name of that movie. I just see Travolta in his face. Eyes of an Angel. Oh. The Doors is good for one watch, but a little bit of Val Kilmer as uh, Jim Morrison goes a long way. He's great in it, but it's exhausting to watch him be in character as Jim Morrison for two and a half hours. So An American Werewolf in London is um, frequently regarded as... Probably the best werewolf movie of all time, at least up there with a couple others. Even better than the classic Universal werewolf movies? Yeah, well, so there's The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. That's definitely up there. That's a classic. And then the same year this came out, 1981, there's The Howling by Joe Dante. That's also a classic. And then there's this, and that's about it. You've oh, got, really? You've got some newer ones that are considered kind of cult classics, like Ginger Snaps and Dog Soldiers. But for some reason, werewolf movies are difficult to crack. Like, there's very few really good ones, for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, but I don't think I've seen any of the films you just listed out. I don't know why it is that, that that's so difficult. It could be that just... Newer things like Twilight and True Blood have sort of turned the werewolf into more of a fantasy creature. 
Yeah, I mean, that was something I asked you before we watched this, was, is this one of those movies that bridges into that supernatural creature thing and moves away from horror? You know, I really think of werewolves as purely horror creatures. I guess they're rooted more in folklore, but certainly in movies going back to the 30s, those universal pictures, werewolves are always horror creatures. I feel like that's kind of a... They were the bad guys. They're not your lover boy. And I enjoy sometimes, like, you know, your Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban's and what have you, and they're sort of brought into a fantasy story, but... um, But they kind of also maintain it as a horror creature because that, that thing won't recognize you. It's going to kill you. I guess what makes a good werewolf story is setting down kind of the rules, the folklore, and I think it's a tragic monster because it's usually a good person that's bit by a wolf or other werewolf, and the person has no control over turning into this beast. And that, yeah, that just makes me think of the character Oz from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, I think that's a, a, probably a good uh, version of a werewolf. Because, again, once he's that creature, you know, he goes to such lengths, poor Seth Green, to chain himself up at night. Yeah. But once he breaks th- free, he's going to kill you, even if you're his best friend. I just think about other creatures like vampires and zombies and ghosts, and there's literally dozens of examples of good films that that feature these these monsters. But I feel, whatever reason, An American Werewolf in London, I think, really kind of nails it. Had you seen this film before? No, this is my first watch. And it's funny because my mom's wanted me to see this for a while. It's a movie that she liked and she recorded. We had satellite and I was visiting one time in college and she was like, I recorded American Werewolf in Paris. It's not it's not the one I want you to watch, but it's probably good. I haven't seen it. We started to watch it. It was really bad. We turned it off. This is not like that at all. Yeah, that was, that was done in the mid-90s with Julie Delpy and... Uh, What's and his name? Another guy that's really recognizable, but you don't see outside of the 90s. Yeah, it was kind of that era of kind of Dawson's Creek pretty boys and horror, which is it was a fun era, but it was interesting because they came out with this movie 15 years later called An American Werewolf in Paris, and it has none of the same creative people. It's not necessarily a sequel it's just kind of another werewolf movie. Yeah, we, we watched the trailer and the feel of it is completely different. I think the best way to describe an American werewolf in London is it's, I'd say, a fairly lighthearted horror movie. Although, yeah. I had originally told you it was more of a horror comedy. On this watch, I don't know if the comedy elements have aged particularly well. Because a lot of the things that are quote-unquote funny about it or just when like all of the songs on the soundtrack have the word moon in them. I didn't notice. I never pay attention to lyrics. And just the use of pop music in general and some of the creature effects I think are sort of intended to have comedic elements to them and some of the character stuff but the humor in it is pretty dry. Yeah it was really dry. There were elements of it that were pretty funny. But it was also kind of an awkward funny, like one of the nurses commenting on having checked his genitalia to see if he was (laughs) circumcised or not because she wanted to know if he was Jewish. Yeah, this is John Landis who also did uh, Animal House and Blues Brothers. So what's funny is my memory of it was it being more of a horror comedy, but it's pretty straight horror for most of the movie. And some of the visuals are really terrifying. So this movie in a nutshell is two young Americans... Two young American men. 
David and Jack, played by David Naughton and Griffin Dunn. They're backpacking across Europe. They look like they could be brothers. Yeah, they look... They're even sort of wearing the same thing. They're, they both they're have wearing the same outfit. It's in just different their jackets colors. are different colors. Yeah, David's the got the jacket. David's got the big puffy red windbreaker and Griffin, excuse me, Jack has They look like down jackets. Yeah, they're sort of down jackets. He's got the green one. That's sort of how you can tell them apart. They're kind of lost. They've uh, been hitchhiking through the moors of northern England and they stumble upon this pub out in the middle of nowhere called the slaughtered lamb yeah except that the picture on the pub sign is of a werewolf (laughs) yeah so they're really just telling you right away and they enter this pub and everyone's just a little off like all the locals are a little uncomfortable there's a pentagram on, on the wall next to two candles they're kind of just sketched out by this whole situation they feel very unwelcome and as they're leaving they're warned stay on the road don't walk into the moors. And Which they... seems like sound advice in general at night when you're looking for somewhere to stay. But sure enough, they wander off, uh, even though they're kind of looking for a place to stay and it's raining. So they leave the road. Yeah, they leave the road. They've already broken the we, locals' we some, wisdom. We got some dum-dums on, on hand here. But I think that the film is sort of self-knowing in this. Yeah, they, they've sort of set up, the, they've set up the mythology and they're going to have our characters just instantly break it. Well, because obviously if you're told... Stay on the road. Don't leave the road. You're going to leave the road. Yeah. And what's funny is when we opened in in rural England, your first question was, "How? this isn't London. Like, when are we going to get to London? We want to get to the big city. (laughs) I was really impatient. Yeah. but, But sure enough, we get there because David and Jack are attacked by a gigantic wolf. Jack is attacked by a gigantic wolf and David runs for it, selfishly so. (laughs) You know, I would like to think that if my friend was attacked by a giant wolf, I'd start wailing on the wolf, but who knows how you would react. This is what we talked about, because it's like, probably David's response is the most human response, and it's it's, it's the way we would react, but we don't admit to ourselves. He does correct himself pretty quickly. He runs right back. He runs, and then you have this moment of hesitation, and he runs back. But he's not fast enough because Jack has been killed. And this surprised me on the first watch because Griffin Dunn is sort of a name, sort of a bigger... He's probably the most recognizable actor in this movie to me. He's in a Martin Scorsese movie that I really like, After Hours. And it was surprising to see him killed off so quickly. What, did After Hours come out before this or after? That's a good question. Because, like, did he establish himself later? I, it might have been a little bit later than this. Uh, don't quote me on that. Anyway, they're, they're both sort of attacked by this wolf. David lives. Jack doesn't. The locals are able to shoot the wolf. And David wakes up three weeks later in mm-hmm. this hospital, and he starts to have these kind of fever dreams. He, he sees his family being killed by mutant Nazis. Yeah, the, the mask that the Nazi guys were wearing reminded me of one of the monsters in Big Trouble in Little China. And we should speak to some of these monster effects, because this is Rick Baker who won the first ever Academy Award for Best Makeup for this movie. And all of the creature and makeup effects are pretty awesome. And we're introduced to this nurse, Nurse Alex Price. Sort of an unhealthy fascination with our survivor, David. Yeah, she essentially just shows herself to be really messed up. She seems to be drawn to his seeming insanity. And talking about having these crazy fever dreams and thinking that he's talked to his dead friend. 
And it, that just seems to turn her on. Her response is, you are so attractive right now. Yeah, we should mention there's only about four main characters in this movie. There's the nurse, the two friends, and the doctor at this hospital. And those are kind of the four main roles yes. throughout the movie. And the doctor is kind of interesting because he takes this sort of serious role of, you know, that's kind of absurd uh, when he's hearing this tale of werewolves. But then he decides to check out the story anyway. And going back to the nurse, I feel like another interesting part of her character, despite the fact that she's kind of drawn to this clearly unhinged, vulnerable guy, is she's kind of just obsessed with Americana in general. Like, her apartment is loaded with, like, Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse figurines and posters of American movies. Yeah, she just takes him home and is just kind of like, yeah, you're my Humphrey Bogart. You know, she just (laughs) totally ignores the fact that this man talks about insane things we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because one of the things that happens in the hospital before he's discharged is he has his first vision of his dead friend jack visiting him yeah and he warns him that that jack has died an unnatural death he was killed by a werewolf Mm -hmm. and because david was scratched and survived he too will become a werewolf yeah. And Jack tells him that he needs to kill himself because the full moon is upon him. He straight up says, you need to commit suicide. I think some of the great comic relief of this movie kind of comes from zombie Jack. Because when he has these Im- these visions of Jack, each time he sees him, he's more and more decayed. But he still sort of has a sense of humor about himself. Which is weird because Jack first appears, what, like three or four weeks after he last saw him. And he doesn't look like he's decayed at all. He's got all those nice, fresh, bloody cuts in his face. But then... The next day, he's suddenly green and rotted. Yeah, yeah. The rest of the movie takes place over the course of three days. And I think this is just, you know, you just kind of give the movie (laughs) some artistic license. Because despite pretty much not decaying those first three weeks, his decay happens really quickly over the next few days. I do wonder to what extent... Are we supposed to think that we're seeing his actual body, the state of his real body, or are we supposed to be seeing in those different stages sort of David's image of him? Like, how much of that is informed by us seeing through David's eyes? It's a good question. We later sort of learn in the mythology of this movie that if you're a werewolf and you go out and kill someone then their ghost will appear to you and they'll remain in limbo until you yourself die or until that That werewolf that werewolf bloodline is severed Mm -hmm. so i don't know it could just be that a freshly killed person uh the first time that you see them looks really fresh but then they i don't know i'm not exactly sure how that works because the the rotting does happen really fast yeah again i wonder if it's something about david's mental state so yes he's finally discharged from the hospital and this way too intimate nurse (laughs) decides to take him home to her apartment where she tells him i only have one bed and i've only been with seven men (laughs) (laughs) she's really she's really into him it's very clear um i don't know how much of that is just that he's kind of this wounded dove that she wants to nurse back to health maybe part of it is her obsession with americans yeah but uh yeah their their relationship is a lot more uncomfortable than i remember (laughs) well and then he he also tells her i love you like the second day right yeah well i think there's some uh 
extenuating circumstances there because he knows that he's a werewolf. He's very resistant to this idea despite the fact that he's visited by his dead friend multiple times and each time his friend Jack tells him you need to kill yourself or you will kill others. To his credit though, I mean, you would think you were just crazy. Yeah. Like, who would actually believe that their dead friend is visiting them and that re- they really do need to die? Yeah. Oh no, I was just thinking the other thing is it's interesting that his friend is like, no, you straight up need to kill yourself. Because I've seen other situations where werewolves cage themselves up somehow. You know, you'd think his friend might give him the benefit of the doubt and say, just just get yourself put in jail or something. I think that this movie's grounded enough to say, hey, he's in he's a fish out of water in London. Where is he gonna find a place that can cage him? That's true. And late and this version of the werewolf is really strong, as we see later in the movie when yeah. he's locked in the theater and is able to just barrel through that barrier like 30 officers yeah this movie and the howling which both came out in 81 are both famous for these really impressive transformation scenes that are all done with practical effects and there's something just really harrowing about his transformation like it takes a long time he's in a great deal of pain yeah you can kind of feel the pain because they they do a really great job of showing his hands stretching out and his feet stretching out some of those sound effects like the popping of bones as he's like really unnaturally stretched into this four-legged wolf i like that you cracked your knuckles to (laughs) bring that point home help our listeners have the same experience yeah and it's just it's just one of the most incredible transformation scenes i think rivaled only by the howling and it just really makes you realize like oh this would be so awful and he like rips off all his clothes because he feels overheated and uncomfortable as this is happening i think one of the really impressive things about it too is there's zero cgi oh yeah just it's all done with them on set painstakingly changing his appearance and i know that we're always harping on cgi and how well i yeah (laughs) i know that i'm always harping on uh how great practical effects are and how cgi sucks but if you look at the transformation scenes of this and the work that Rob Bottin did on The Howling the same year. I mean, they're just, they're just unparalleled as far as this kind of stuff goes. Like, I feel in, in other things, it's just like a really quick, like, digital morph into a creature, and it seems mm. very painless. Whereas this, like, you really get the sense of just completely the skeletal structure is changing Every single cell in his body is changing into something else. Like, it, it, it makes you relate to what the character is going through mm-hmm. in a very interesting way. And this first night that he's a werewolf, he really gets around. He kills six people. Yeah. <laughs> All over the city. And it's pretty impressive. Um, they were really showing off the fact that they were on location. Yeah, for, considering that this is a relatively short movie, it's only an hour and a half... And it goes by really quickly. It's a very simple movie. You basically get two nights of him as a werewolf. Very few characters. You sure do see a lot of London. You get to see just this first night. He attacks a Londoner in a tube station. The London Bridge when he attacks a... A group of homeless people. Which, that homeless scene. I was looking at it and I felt like it was so out of place. I'm sure they have homeless in London. But as 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 a viewer of film... 
I feel like I've only seen that scene occur in like Chicago and New York. It's one of those cliched things where there's a bunch of hobos worming their hands around a, a barrel uh, fire, a barrel fire, which is something you'd see in like child's play, Ninja Turtles maybe. And uh, later on, of course, you see Trafalgar Square and Piccadilly Circus. It reminds you that they had a $10 million budget to work with in early 80s dollars, and they really put it all on screen. And they put him in the naked in the London Zoo. Yeah. Too. He wakes up with some wolves. Yeah, he wakes up in the wolf cage. The wolves are totally cool with him, unlike dogs and cats. I think this is another thing that sort of comes up in werewolf movies is, you know, you wake up naked and you, you sort of, it's sort of like that, that idea of a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, along with uh, along with the real nightmares that he has in this movie, I think it's a you know it's a really kind of cliched nightmare to being naked in public and yeah. having to run to find clothes. And there's a lot of humor in this part of the movie, like he has to hide in some bushes and talk a child into coming over so he can steal his balloons. Which leads to a classic line of the movie when the boy comes up to his mother and says. A naked American man stole my balloons. <laughs> but then he uses the balloons to run through through a park, or is he still in the zoo and he grabs a woman's red coat? Yeah, he steals he steals a woman's coat. It's it's pretty and then, great. And then he wears it and it's got a nice little fur collar. And then he goes home to the nurse who is just totally like, Oh, you were gone all night and you're coming home in a woman's coat. And otherwise completely naked. Yeah, but I'm so turned on right now. He, she just, she just <laughs> is so odd. She's really got some problems. I, I want to know what's going on under that. Yeah, she's she's not a normal person by any means. I also should give him some credit for being unstable. Because he gets back and he's just like, yeah, I was naked out there. I need to shower. This was, you know, I'm having a great time. And He then... wasn't concerned at all. Then he learns that he's killed six people from the taxi cab driver. As as she's dragging him to the hospital because the doctor realized that he at least, he either is a werewolf or thinks he's a werewolf and murdered people. Yeah, and then he tries to get himself arrested, which is a pretty good plan, but he does it really poorly. He runs up to a bobby and he starts defaming some of the great, some of the royalty of England. <laughs> In insulting both the Queen and Prince Charles. And what's funny about that is at the end of the movie, in the end credits, there's a uh, kind of uncomfortable title card. Well, in hindsight. In hindsight, that congratulates Princess Diana and Prince Charles on their recent nuptials. At this point, he's very despondent. He realizes that he's responsible for killing six people. And guess what? It's another full moon tonight. And he gets another visitation from his friend Jack in this porno theater. Where well, there's... Jack motions him into the porno yeah. theater to, to the to the great film See You Next Wednesday. This is a fake... Possibly a reference to See You Next Tuesday. Yeah. This is a fake, kind of an in-joke with John Landis movies where there's, uh, in several of his films, there's posters for a movie called See You Next Wednesday he shot this kind of fake porno movie where the dialogue is really stilted and everything is very weird. And while they're watching that movie, David is visited not only by Jack, who's now rotted all the way to a talking skeleton, but to all the people that he killed the previous night. 
And again, they plead with him, like, just kill yourself. Like, you can't go on like this. And this is happening, like, he was motioned into the theater after he couldn't bring himself to slit his wrists in a phone booth. Which would have been the worst way to do it, I would feel have been, like. I mean, just, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a discussion of how would you kill yourself. But, but I think one of the things is, one, it, that's that's a really hard way to do it. It's a lot, I, I feel like it's easy to go, wait. I'm not actually going to do this. But at the same time, like, if you swallowed a bottle of pills, he could have his stomach pumped and then kill a bunch of people in the hospital. Mm -hmm. But, of course, this conversation in the theater takes all night. And he goes on what's one of the most amazing monster rampages I've seen in any movie, where David in wolf form kills everyone in the theater and then breaks out into Piccadilly Circus. They somehow close down all of Piccadilly Circus for this incredible sequence where the where a double-decker bus crashes. They had to have shut it down and like I'm not shut it down but they had to have been doing this in the middle of the night, like at yeah. 2 a.m. or something. Yeah, it's just incredible amount of destruction that's caused by this wolf, not only by the wolf himself, but by secondary, you know, car crashes and wrecks are happening all around this wolf. It ends a little anticlimactically with David being shot and turning back into his human self. But, Dead on the ground. But I have to say, one of the things that really grabs me about this movie, it's so such a compact little story. And I feel like even though I'm left kind of wanting another 20 minutes of creature violence and <laughs> uh, crazy, you know, a crazy bloody travelogue through London, we've gotten such high highs and such interesting and unusual moments. So many horror cliches sort of turned on its head that I feel like it's kind of the perfect place for it to end, even if it does feel a little abrupt. It feels very abrupt. <laughs> I did not expect it to end. Like, he gets he gets shot, you see him dead, and then the credits roll. There's no in-between there. It could even be an editing thing. Like, I feel like if this movie is made today, they'd let that moment kind of sink in for a moment longer. Like, yeah. maybe you'd, you'd, they'd end on a uh, sort of a shot of the skyline, the London skyline, and just let it sink in for a moment before cutting right to the end credits. Mm-hmm. But it works for me. I, I don't mind the abruptness of it. Just to go over the, some of the uh, highlights of the soundtrack really quick. Um, there's several covers of the song Blue Moon, which is famously done by Elvis. There's a Bobby Vinton version. There is a version done by the Marcells. Uh, Bad Moon Rising, one of my favorites, by Credence. Uh, Van Morrison's Moon Dance. There's a ton of, uh, lots of... Uh, cheeky moon references on the uh soundtrack getting that lunar music oh yeah i guess if i did have some nitpicks about this film i know that it's a horror classic but even i find some things uh to nitpick with i find the main character david to be bland. just very yeah kind of bland and kind of just yeah. passive he doesn't seem too i mean aside from his freak out in trafalgar square he, you know, his, obviously his great physical pain during the transformation sequence. I feel like he's very unfazed by everything that's happening around him. And I don't know, if I found out that I'd killed six people in wolf form, I think I'd have a little more urgency than he does. He kind of just bums around the city all day until nightfall. Yeah, he doesn't really deal with it that well. And I think also... 
when I look back on this movie, the the part, the section that I like the most is really in those first ten minutes. There's something about the just the imagery of these two guys kind of just backpacking through the foggy moors of northern England. There's something very romantic about that imagery and just Mm -hmm. that dank pub that they go to. Like, that imagery is just really arresting to me. And I know that the name of the movie is An American Werewolf in London, so it's more about the wolf being loose in an urban environment. But I just really love that one of my favorite movies, With Nail and I, has a lot of the same stuff. Just kind of the English countryside and these old creaky pubs. And uh, I'm just kind of a sucker for that sort of imagery. Kind of an Anglophile, I suppose. And I guess because it's such a simple movie, kind of divided into the rural England section, the hospital section, and then the... Uh, werewolf in london section kind of the meat of the movie Mm -hmm. there isn't a whole lot to really say about it you know the effects are classic got a big cult following just because it's one of the great werewolf movies but because it's so short and concise and compact there there isn't a whole lot to say in a in a podcast episode so uh, i i've already sort of run out of things to say about this movie as much as i love it yeah i think Even the characters are kind of simple, like their attempt to do character development with the nurse. They show her with this really darling child, and he just says no to everything, and isn't that funny? But they show him a couple times, and it's kind of like, by the second time, it's like, we already got this this part of her where we see that she's sweet to little kids. Like, isn't there something else you could tell us about her that's a little more interesting? Or could you tell us something more about David that's interesting? But we see him doing a lot of pacing and standing awkwardly, but there's... I feel like they could have done just a little bit more to add in some character development. It would be easy to dismiss this as sort of seeming like a first draft of a script because the everything is so kind of surface level. But John Landis had this script around for 10 years before he finally got the clout to to really do it. And I think what it comes down to is he really just wanted to do a simple kind of classic horror yarn. And and it's kind of like a campfire story, I feel like. That's why all the characters are kind of archetypes. They're kind of bland. They kind of act in ways that normal people wouldn't really... Going off the road when you're trying to find somewhere to sleep. Yeah, I mean, these are... As in an inn, not, you know, a cave. Yeah, it really feels like a cautionary tale at times. Like, David really makes all the worst decisions throughout the movie. All right, Sean, I think we're getting to that part of the episode. Would you buy it, rent it, or tape over it? I think it's safe to say that I'd buy it. It's it's not just because by default I feel this is a great werewolf movie. I think even if there were tons and tons of really awesome werewolf movies out there, this would still be my one of my favorites. Uh, it's kind of neck and neck with The Howling for me, but... Um, it's just one that I find myself revisiting a lot in, in Rick Baker's effects, particularly in the transformation scene. Uh, and, and a lot of the, the effects are kind of off screen. It, it sort of has that Jaws effect of of letting your imagination kind of fill in the blanks in some of these scenes. I feel like it just has a lot of those classic horror qualities that makes it kind of mm-hmm. timeless for me. One of the things that was kind of funny, too, was you notice the characters looking at the camera at different points of yeah. the movie. Which kind of throws you off as part of the audience because you're not used to that. During that kind of iconic chase through the tube station, 
so much of it is just that character communicating through his performance, like his fear at this wolf that's just off camera, and he's running through the tube station, and it's not until he's collapsed on the escalator and he's kind of going up in the background, you see this this werewolf kind of crawl out of the shadows, and things like that are really effective to me, where you just get hints of the uh-huh. creature. And a lot of it is just done in these these close up shots of the of the puppet just whirling its face at, towards the camera. Sean, didn't you say that the wolf sounds were a combination of wolves and elephants? There's conflicting information on this. John Landis claims that it was seven or eight different animals, but I don't really know how much I trust him. <laughs> I, I think that is true, that it's... Because it sounds like the wolf calls in this are really interesting, the wolf howls, because it's not just a wolf howling, it's something much bigger and much worse. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of got that... Like that vibrato in it <laughs> that that makes it seem really otherworldly. And I think it is an elephant that's underneath it. What about you? What did you think of it? I would say rent it. I liked the effects. I found it kind of fun. It was it was a nice exploration in the English countryside and through London. It's not one I would want to watch over and over again, but it definitely I feel a little bit closer to the werewolf mythos now. One that I think you'd really be into is Ginger Snaps. That was one that was done in either the late 90s or early 2000s, but it's interesting because it's from a female perspective and it sort of follows these two girls that are actually really well developed. And it kind of focuses on the friend of a girl who's clearly a werewolf. <laughs> and there's there's something really fun about that one. Oh, okay. Um, I've th- heard of Ginger's Yes, yeah. I think that's up there with, with an, an American werewolf in London and the howling in my book. I believe that we're having a guest on in the next episode. Is that true? We're going to have my friend Chloe Keister on, not to be confused with the other Chloe we had who watched It Takes Two with us. Chloe Shieldhouse. Yeah. And we're going to watch All Dogs Go to Heaven. Which I'm not sure if I've ever seen, but I know it's... I don't think you've seen it. I know that it's a part of that strange offshoot of animated movies like Land Before Time and... Uh, an American tale. An American werewolf in London. <laughs> no. An American tale and uh, The Secret of Nim. Oh. One of your favorites, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. If, I, I don't think I would call it a favorite. It was one of those movies that just is branded in my mind. <laughs> so tune in next time for All Dogs Go to Heaven. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. We have a link to Will's music on our website, tapeheadspodcast.com, where you can learn more about our other episodes. You can email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com, and we'd love to uh, to hear your feedback through ratings and reviews on iTunes. So that's it for this episode of Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time.